0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We have come to the end of our study in Titus. We have seen that Paul's instruction, he's been explaining Titus how to plant a church on the island of Crete. And in part one, we looked at the authority and the structure of the church that God has implemented, and it said this is the way that the church is to be organized and structured. In part two, we looked at how the doctrine changes the way that believers act and in the way that they live. That believers ought to stand out in the midst of a pagan society, even as bad as Crete. So that those uh, in Crete might look at them and see that these Christians are adorning the Gospel of Jesus Christ with their speech and with their lives. And this week, in our conclusion, Paul takes this gracious community that Paul has been building out into the world for all the world to see. See, when we go outside of a church building, outside of our own homes, what are we to do? How are we to act? What are we to look like? See, Paul explains this in our passage by first looking at the external behavior of Christians and what they do. Next, he takes us into the internal transformation of the believer's life as he has been or she has been transformed by grace. And finally, we get those marching orders that Paul has offered us over again and again in the book of Titus. So let's begin by looking at verses one and two together as Paul explores the external behavior that Christians are to have in the world. He says in verse one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work. Now, again, if we think about the, the culture that they're in, if we think about Crete, Paul has already described them to the believers, he said that they are disobedient, that they are insubordinate, that they are unfit for every good work. And so here again, we see that Christians are to live counterculturally. that rather than fitting in with the culture around them, they are to be submissive. They are to be obedient to the government. They are to seek the good of that authority that is over to, above them. The Christians are to stand out in their respect, and they are to pour themselves out into the society in which they live. And this is a common command to God's people. We see it all through the Bible. God always calls His people to submit to the authorities above them. Now this may make sense if we think about, say, a godly government, or or good parents, or wise leaders. But what makes this command difficult for us is that it is often given in the face of corrupt governments and evil societies. We can think about the biblical example we have in Daniel when he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went to Babylon and they were told to eat this food that wasn't kosher, this food that they weren't allowed to eat. Rather than rebelling against them, they submitted. But they they did so in a respectful way. They went to the eunuch and said, can we please have a pass? Can you test us? And they agreed. And so we see that God allowed them to be faithful both to the authority above them and to the greater authority of God's law. Later, we see Jeremiah with the other exiles that had been sent out of Israel into Babylon. Listen to what Jeremiah tells them to do. Tells them not to revolt, but to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That this pagan nation, we're, we're to care about it. We're to pray for it and seek its good. Settle down enjoy it when jesus was asked about taxes in the new testament he said render to caesar the things that are caesar's and the things to god that that are god's or paul in romans 13 let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from god and those who exist have been instituted by god now there are many more examples that we could point to in scripture but the evidence is clear that christians are called to submit to the authorities above them. That God has instituted those. And not only are we supposed to submit to good authorities, but also to bad authorities. Not grudgingly or from a heart that is angry, but with desire for goodwill and every good work. So whenever I think about submission, I always want to say, but what about the exceptions? Aren't there exceptions to the rule? Right? I mean, if you think about it like Daniel, yeah, he was submissive, but he ended up getting thrown into the lion's den for civil disobedience. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. If you think about the New Testament church, James and Peter and Paul were all persecuted because they weren't willing to go along with what the authorities had told them to do. Don't these exceptions prove that we don't always have to obey the government? Well, Okay, so there are exceptions, but if you look at these things, these are very specific and clear-cut cases where the authority above us is telling us exactly the opposite of what God had said. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to bow down to idols. As Christians, we cannot do that. The greater authority of God has commanded that we shall have no idols and we worship God alone. With Daniel thrown into the lion's den, he was commanded not to pray to God, but to pray to the king. He can't do that. Peter, James, John, Paul, were told to stop preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Can't do that. But these are exceptions. And it's not the rule. For Christians, we have to understand that God's command and God's rule to us is to respect the authority above us. And to be subject to it. Now if we're really honest. It's going to be very difficult. In our current environment. See our country is greatly divided. Right now. And not only are we divided. But we've been given this platform. We have social media. And we're told to say what you want. Without holding back. Give me your opinion. Tell people what you think. This, in turn, leads to cheap shots and low blows and attacks on character of everyone. I, when, when I look around, I don't see a society that gives much respect or submission to the governing authorities above us. And sadly, I'm, I'm not sure that the church is much better off or has done much to quell this. See, believers, we often add fuel to the fire rather than living peacefully and speaking respectfully. Or submitting to the leadership that is above us. I'm afraid that our example isn't much like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We don't sound like Jeremiah or Peter or Paul. The Christians ought to stand out for our love and support as we submit, obey, and actively seek the good of the rulers and the authorities above us. Now in the next verse... Paul looks at our relationship to other people in general. He tells us that we are not to speak evil of others. I think the NIV translates that we're not to slander others. And we're to avoid quarreling. Now remember the reputation of the Cretans. Paul has has already said that they, they, they like to argue. They like to slander and speak evil of one another. I mean, how easy is it for us in our lives to use our mouths for destruction rather than the building up of our neighbors. Gossip and rumors and slander is all around us and it's so easy to take part in that. We have our strange family members that are easy to want to talk bad about. Or our nasty coworkers that don't treat us well. Or that misfit neighbor that doesn't mow their yard on time and does strange things and holds strange hours. See, it's easy to justify and it happens all the time. But Christians are to protect the dignity of our fellow man. We are to use our tongues and be careful because what comes out of our mouth comes out of our heart. And it tells us a lot about our hearts. That we need to check our hearts when we want to speak evil of others. We need to watch our mouth and guard our tongue. If there's any doubt in this, James puts that to rest. In James 3, he says, no human being can tame his tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord our Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And so if we think we've tamed our tongue, we need to reevaluate. We need to rethink who we are and what we're doing. And rather than using our tongues to harm others, and slander others, and speak evil of others. Paul calls us to be gentle and peaceable, to show perfect courtesy to all people. Notice that's not people that we necessarily agree with, not people that we like. It's those people that we want to slander. It's those people that we want to speak evil of. We need to be peaceable. We need to show them perfect courtesy, See, Paul is calling us to be gentle and show utmost courtesy, not as lip service, not as just something to do, but from our very hearts, that our hearts are to do this because they have been transformed by God. Now, this is what believers are called to look like in society, in a society that doesn't like them and thinks that they're strange. They're to stand out and be completely different, completely other than the society that's all around them. So again, Paul gives us a high moral code and tells us to stand out. See, how can we live this way? From where do Christians get this ability? Well, in a word, we find it in grace. That the grace of God transforms our lives. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us about grace. It tells us about who we were prior to Christ. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I want to just stop. I want you to think about this. Think about the description that Paul has used here. It's easy to go through these lists sometimes. It just breeze through them and move on. But uh, Paul would have us sit and dwell and think about these things because he's telling us a lot about our nature outside of Christ. The first thing that we notice is that he uses the personal we ourselves. That this describes Paul. That this describes Titus. But it also describes you and me. That this is our personal story here. We see that we're foolish that we're ignorant we don't know right from wrong that we're pursuing our own way that we're not only pursuing our own way but we're easily led astray by others and we're we're led astray by the passions of this world by our own flesh that our hearts are bent on wicked and we are addicted to that which we want in this world we can't get ourselves out so we live our days in malice, wishing evil upon others. And when we see the good that others receive, we want that for ourselves, that we're envious and jealous. And so the heart that is bent on this selfishness and in and of themselves, they, they, they end up in a world of hatred. Where all they can do is hate one another. See, when we're left to ourselves and our own selfishness, we're helpless. We're a wreck. That when Paul in in Romans tells us that we all fall short of the glory of God, he doesn't mean just a little bit short. That we're just a little short of the mark. No, Paul is telling us that we fall way short. That there's nothing we can do. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that ultimately we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So in our confession, we see that Adam sinned in the garden. And that he imputed this sinful nature to us so that we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to evil. And whether we've come to the Lord later in life and have a clear moment where we can look back and say, I was this way before Christ and I'm this way after Christ or we grew up in the church, the important thing for us to realize is no matter who you are or what kind of upbringing you've had, this is our story. This is our biography. This is who we were. I mean, if we think about it, if I think about it, I know what selfishness is. I know what disobedience is. I know what it means to be a slave to passions. know what it means to live in malice and envy and hatred. Not primarily by looking out in the world and seeing it in other people. No, these these things dwell within me. I have learned them through experience. And I'm no better off. And save but the grace of God, these are the things that would define me. Now while this painful reality stays in, in believers in part, For believers, Paul tells us that this is the past tense, that we were foolish, that we were disobedient, that there is something greater for us in the present and in the future. You see, Paul loves to take believers down memory lane. We see it here. We see it in Ephesians 2, where he takes us down into the the despair. as he he shows us our own corruption and our depravity, it feels like we're going through sludge and slime and going ever deeper and deeper until we hit the rock bottom of our nature. Paul does this not, not to beat us up, not to make us feel bad or show us necessarily how terrible we are. No, his goal is when we hit rock bottom to turn in verse four and point us to Christ and point us to a God who descended in after us to come and save us according to His mercy, according to His love, according to His favor that we didn't earn, that we didn't deserve. That out of love and pity and mercy and kindness, He came, not because we earned it, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His mercy and unmerited love towards us because He chose to love us. Do we see that for the believer, salvation from beginning to end is an act of our Trinitarian God who loved us and saved us? And kind of, when I was growing up, there was this song Reliant K sang. And one of the lines in this song uh, was the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. We could quibble about some theological, but I find this sentiment very helpful. Me when I think about grace. See, what I deserved in my nature and in my sin was the curse and the wrath of God. That if I'm going to talk about what I deserve, it's nothing good. But rather than God allowing me to endure that for myself, He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to live. A perfect life. And He did that. But rather than clinging to that, He chose to lay it down. He chose to substitute Himself. He chose to stand between me and the wrath of God and take what I deserve upon Himself and give me the righteousness that He had earned. Our confession tells us that we might be freely justified, pardoned of our sin, and accounted and accepted as righteous by the imputing of obedience and the satisfaction of Christ to us. This is fancy language, but the point is we don't get the wrath that we deserve. We receive the righteousness of Christ as a free gift through faith. It's beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. When we stop and we think about it. Now the question is, why does Paul include this right here? How does this take us out into society? How does this inform the way that we live? Well, there's many, many things that we could point to. But I think we'll look at three of them today. First, it reminds us that we're no better off than those terrible sinners that we see out in the world. You see, grace levels the playing field. And it reminds us that we're all in the same boat together. See, if we own verse 3, and we say that we, we have a terrible nature, and that we lived in sin, and that we earned God's wrath, how could we ever look down our noses at anyone else who hasn't experienced this? We didn't earn it. It was given to us. It was a gift. How can we think we're better than anyone else? Paul doesn't allow us to become arrogant or boastful, even as he calls us to a high moral standard. It doesn't matter. Grace has saved us. We didn't save ourselves. We can't live in self-righteous condemnation of our neighbors who live immoral lives. Or of those nasty co-workers that treat us poorly. Or even our leaders, our politicians, and superstars that flaunt and celebrate sin and living that's clearly unbiblical in our face. No, grace reminds us that had God not intervened in our lives, that that would be us. See, when Paul tells us to be peaceable, gentle, and showing perfect courtesy toward all, we can only do that if we have been radically transformed from the inside out. That's not to say that we're called to overlook sin. Sin is sin and it's wicked. It's heinous. It's evil in God's sight. We don't overlook sin. But it does change our perspective when we look at the world around us. See, rather than looking in condemnation, we should see the world with compassion like Jesus saw. Rather than anger and hatred and frustration, it should be people that look in love and in pity the way that God did for us. Rather than becoming hard-hearted, grace teaches us to weep for those that don't know God and aren't living according to His standards. That we are to pray for their souls and to seek opportunities to share the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and to long for those individuals to come to faith to a knowledge of salvation that we find in Christ. Grace teaches us that we're all in this together and that we live on a level playing field. Second thing that grace teaches us, that it reminds us that we aren't crushed when we fail to live up to the moral standard that Paul shows us here in these last two verses in the whole book and in the whole Bible. See, Christians are called to live differently than others, and that's undeniable. We are called to live to a high moral standard we're not perfect. We fail. We fall down. See, we're in the process of being changed. We're not, we're not glorified. But we still battle sin, and we go through this world still battling sin. From the oldest of us to the youngest of us, we continue to fall short of the glory of God every day. See, this shows us that we need grace every single day. And if God was willing to show us grace and mercy and kindness when we were rebels against Him, when we were sinners actively disobeying Him, how much more will He show us grace now that we are called His children, now that He has adopted us and brought us into His home? Beautiful. Remember the words of Paul in Romans 8. If He who did not spare His own Son for us, but gave Him up for us all, How will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That we are loved with an intense love that goes beyond our imaginations by a father. Just absolutely stunning. So when we fail, we remember that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't let your sin, don't let your failing crush you or lead you to despair. No. Turn to Christ and find His grace daily. Knowing that you are deeply loved. Third, gracefully teaches us to do good works. Now we have already established, Paul has already established, that good works played no part in our salvation. That our righteous name, righteousness comes from Christ and not from ourselves. And that the love of God is not based on our obedience. So, what place does good works have in the life of believer? What what space is left for good works? Well, we see this when we look at verse five. See, in verse five, Paul tells us that God saved us. And if we look at the words he used in the process that is done, he says, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That when we think about washing, there's something there, but it's dirty and it's filthy and it needs to be washed off. When we think about regeneration, something is there, but it needs to be made again. It needs to be generated again. Renewal, same thing. That there's something there, but it needs to be made new again. So in a sense, believers are going back to who we were. That scripture talks about this as a new birth, a new creation. That the new has come and the old is passing away. That we have a new nature and a new heart. You see, in the beginning, man was created good in the garden. And he had a righteous standing before God. And so in sanctification, we are becoming who we were meant to be. But a key difference, we're not going back to the garden. We're not going back to Adam who imputed our sinful nature to us. We're going back to the second Adam, to our representative, Jesus Christ. That we are being remade in His image so that we may look more and more like Him. That sanctification is the process of growing more and more Christ-like through the power of the Holy Spirit. Grace is remaking remaking us and it's giving us new desires. This is why Paul finds the idea of of using grace to do whatever we want, that we've been saved and we can live however we want and we can say whatever we want and God will forgive us. Paul finds that appalling and revolting, that we have died to sin. Sinclair Ferguson picks up on this idea and adds this. He says, by definition, believers are those who have died to sin. Since this is so, it is inconceivable, a contradiction of who and what we are, that we would go casually on in our sin. See, where before our natures were bent on evil and on ourselves and our own selfish desires, we are being renewed and we have been regenerated. We have been given a new heart that no longer thinks this way. That we are to pursue that which God desires and which God has shown us in His Word. That believers are to pursue good works not for salvation, not for status, not for personal gain, but, be, but out of a thankfulness for the love of God and the grace of God that has remade us. The good works then are the fruits and the evidence of a true and lively faith empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to verses 8 through 11, the end of our passage today. And Paul gives us our marching orders. He reminds us in verse 8 that these things are, this is saying, is trustworthy. And I want to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. If we look through the book of Titus, this is what Paul says over and over again. It's in the introduction. It was in week one. It's in week two. And here again, we see it at the end of the book as he's summing it up and wrapping it up for us. What are we to do with this knowledge of grace? We're to go out into the world and live like Christians. And live like Christ would have us to live. Now over and against these things, we see that there are foolish controversies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. That our society will always have those. That we'll always have distractions in this world. And we'll be tempted to take division and dissension into the ranks of the church. And to waste our time with these things. But Paul reminds us that these are unprofitable and worthless. And have no place in the church. That The grace of God has given us something to talk about. Something to dwell on. Something to love. And to pursue. So as we leave Titus. May we not leave Christ's message to his church. The church is to be a gracious community. Marked by grace. That the world when it sees it. Will see a place full of grace. Not because of who we are in and of ourselves. But because of the graciousness of our Savior. Because of the grace of God. That has been poured out upon us so abundantly, so lavishly, so richly that it infiltrates every part of our life, that nothing should remain the way it was, but that grace is filling us. And that filling is now overpouring into what we believe, into what we say, and what we do. See, let us remember that we represent a gracious God. And seek to live lives that adorn sound doctrine that we have been given to the glory of our God and Savior. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.